I write every single day or I do work every single day. And if you do work every single day, you will get a book written. You will. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Rights for Women. My name is Pamela Cook. I'm the host and producer of Rights for Women, as well as an author of contemporary women's fiction, a writing mentor and teacher. This podcast is recorded on the unceded land of the Dharawal people, and I pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. As mentioned, today's episode is something a little different. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you may know that I'm inviting guest hosts to help me out a little with the recordings, and this week's episode is hosted by well-known best-selling author of Rural Romance and Life Lit, Rachel Johns. A huge shout out and thank you to Rachel for taking on this episode. When Rachel and I were chatting about who she might like to interview on the Convo Couch, the first choice was US author Ellen Hildebrand. With nothing to lose, we reached out to Ellen, who immediately said yes, and the wheels were in motion to make the chat happen. It's a warm, wonderful conversation, and one I loved eavesdropping on as I edited the episode, and I'm sure you're going to love it too. Ellen chats about her books, writing process, and gives her top tips for writers, as well as reading recommendations. And I was excited to hear that we share our love for a fabulous Australian author when it comes to our all-time top books and writers. So sit back, grab a cuppa, and join Rachel and Ellen Hildebrand on the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Hi, wonderful Rights for Women listeners. I'm Rachel Johns, Australian author of Rural Romance and Women's Fiction. My latest book is Outback Secrets, which released a few weeks ago. And today I'm absolutely thrilled to be taking over Pamela Cook's Convo Couch to talk to one of my all-time favourite authors, I'm honoured, excited, completely starstruck, and I don't usually get very nervous, but I am nervous tonight. Before we came on, Ellen posted on Instagram that she was just chatting, and I was sitting on the couch next to my son watching some suits, and I saw your post, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be on there now. So anyway, I'm here now, it's all the right time, and thank you, Ellen, for getting up at so, well, you're an early riser anyway, aren't you? I am an early riser anyway, which is why I thought this might be the best time for me. Yes. So not, not a worry. So yes, Ellen is, it's 6.30 in the morning where Ellen is and it's 7.30 at night where I am. So we had to do the maths to make sure that worked out okay. I'll just tell you a little bit about Ellen, although I'm sure most of you know who she is. Ellen is a New York Times bestselling author. I hope I've done this right. 29 novels. Is that correct? 27 novels, 28 on the way. It's very confusing. We I'm can talk very about bad that. Maths, obviously. No, no. Really, I can't count. <laughs> anyway, that's still amazing, including her debut, The Beach Club. My faves, which is the perfect, it's hard to choose because that, but perfect couple, I think. My agent actually told me about this novel when I was in America quite a few years ago. And she said, You must read this book. It's absolutely great. It's got a bit of mystery in it bit of romance, a bit of just family drama. And I fell in love with you through this book. And I've been trying to read my way through your backlist ever since and always keeping up with the front list. 28 Summers, I have to say, I am quite hard and I never cry in books. This is only the second book in my life I think I've cried in. And I recommend it to everyone. I just loved it so much. There's so many things I could ask you, but I'll just keep going for a moment. <laughs> to say your most recent one, The Golden Girl, or Golden Girl, which I also loved. I was very annoyed because in Australia I ordered it online and it took me, it took weeks and I was getting very cranky. Oh. But anyway, I finally read it and absolutely loved it too. Now, Ellen lives on Nantucket Island. 
which, oh my goodness, since reading her books, I'm desperate to go there. It just sounds absolutely like your idyllic lifestyle. And after, I was not say I'm able to leave WA because I'm not allowed to leave at the moment. I don't know if you know much about the, the Australian borders at the moment, Ellen, do you? At the moment, I don't, although I have spent a lot of time in WA. But uh, no, you guys are stuck there, huh? Pretty much WA, we've become, well, I heard someone in America joking that we're a penal colony down south again, but the rest of okay. Australia are opening kind of up. But yeah, we're not allowed to leave. We can leave, but we can't come back. So uh, hopefully right. that changes very soon. In addition to being a fabulous novelist, Ellen is a mum of three, a runner, which I'm also interested in, a foodie, and a Peloton rider. Is that how you say it? Peloton? Yes. Because it's, yes. Only, yeah, tell us. It's a stationary bike. It must not have made its way to Australia yet. It's, it's just a, it's, the most, it's the most fabulous stationary bike. And it has an interactive screen and you pick your instructor and the length of time and then the kind of music you want to listen to. And that's really what I like about it. So yeah. I do rock and roll, rock and roll. <laughs> I love okay. it. Oh, well, I, I have actually, because of you, I signed up to Peloton in Australia. And so I get their emails and it is, it is there's a Black Friday special on at the moment. And I'm very right. close to treating myself because it sounds amazing. So yeah, I firstly thank you because I think I'm so starstruck. I haven't, you know, officially said thank you for taking the time to come on Rights for Women. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. I love that you you have spent a lot of time in Australia and I hope maybe one day we'll we'll get you back here for some sort of book tour. Oh, I, oh my gosh, that would be a dream. Yeah, so I'll just start. I mean, I'm happy to start by saying one of the reasons why I was so excited to do this is because I first went to Australia in 1995. My then boyfriend, who then became my husband, who is now my ex-husband, although we are still very... <laughs> We're still very good friends, but we, we run through that. So anytime I'm talking about Australia, I was with either my boyfriend or my, my husband, the same person. We went in the, in the spring of 1995, Chip's friend from high school was getting married to a girl from WA and the wedding was in Perth. And so we were doing a backpacking tour through Southeast Asia and we incorporated the wedding in Perth as part of our six month trip. And when I got to free, it was in Fremantle. When I got to Frio, I was like, this place is magical. I mean, it, it still remains after Nantucket, probably my number two spot on the globe. I love Fremantle so much. I could start to cry. I love it so much because I haven't been there since 2011. I love it so much. And I love the city of Perth and I love the, the culture and the cafe culture and just the way you guys are so relaxed and like, oh, love the beaches caught as low, like love, love, love. We were there for the wedding. And then we decided after we got married that we would go back. So we went for five years. Wow. We would go for, we came for six to eight weeks and we rented a bungalow in, in Frio. In Frio. Yeah. yeah. And our friends have a house in Margaret River. So we would always take two or three weeks and go to Margaret River. So I've spent a lot of time in Australia. I've been to other parts. I've been to Ayers Rock. I've been to Sydney. I've been to Melbourne. I've been to Adelaide. I've been to Monkey Monkey oh, Maya. Monkey Maya, yep, yep. And cool. Monkey Maya X Mouth. We my son swam with the whale sharks. I mean, we've done all that, but yep. primarily our time has been in Perth and Frio. It sounds like you've seen more of Australia than me. I mean, I've seen all the capital cities and you know, but I haven't been to Ezrock yet. So or should, I should I think yeah. I should say Uluru now. But that's we're happy to have you back anytime. Next year we've got a big writing conference in Frio. So, you know, you're welcome to come. come. Okay. Uh, 
So I'll take back to the beginning. I'd actually, I want to ask you kind of a broad question. Why do you write? So, you know, I just, it's just going to sound corny. It's just in my blood. I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was seven. My second grade teacher gave us all an award at the end of our, of our second grade year. And my award was the top author award. I was seven years old. And I think I can't tell. I always say this because my second grade teacher has since come to my events and she's been in the audience. And I said, I'm not sure if I showed enormous talent at age seven or if you set me on a path by identifying something that I was enthusiastic about and you made me believe, she made me believe that I could be a writer. And so I've always wanted to do it. My parents were very supportive. I always read and I just always wanted to be a writer. And I'm so, so lucky that I knew what I wanted to do with my life. I think it is It is something that's in your blood, isn't it? Often yeah. I, you know, aspiring writers sometimes say to me, oh, I want to give up kind of thing because I mean, I had so many rejections. I say, do, give up if you can, yeah. because I'm sure you you'll can. agree, having listened right. to some of your talks and stuff before, it's not the easiest way to make a living by any means. Oh. No. Um, but if you can't give up, then I think, you know, it's what you're supposed to do. And teachers are so important, aren't they? Those teachers that just, you know, take yes. us on our paths. I got an award too, but it wasn't anything to do with writing. My year seven teacher, who I, is also a special teacher and has come to one of my events, she um, gave everyone an award at the end of the year. And mine was the person who could make a little piece of chocolate last a long time. <laughs> That's very special, Rachel. It's very specific. Um, very specific. Yeah. Now, your novel, the very first novel, if I'm correct, was The Beach Club, which is actually yeah. one that I have got but haven't read yet. So I'm looking forward to getting to that. But I'd love to know, like, when you first published that book, everyone's got dreams of what can happen. And we know that there's so many different things that can happen when you publish a book. And, you know, yeah. what were your hopes and dreams, the wildest dreams that you had for your books? I mean, that book came out in the year 2000. So publishing was different. Yeah. And I was so excited to get it published. I got a very small advance. My advance was $5,000. And my agent, when I, when I signed up with my agent, I had been, I need to go back a little bit. I had, I did my graduate work at a place called the University of Iowa Writers Workshop, which in America is the best, for whatever reason, just the best writing place historically. Kurt Vonnegut went there. John Irving went there. All these, fam- Ann Patchett went there. All these famous and people. Went there. <laughs> and Ellen. And it was very literary. Anyway, I found my agent because he came to my class and he had grown up summers on Nantucket. And so he was interested in me. And I said, I'm writing a novel called The Beach Club. It's about halfway done. Then when I finished it, I sent it to him and he was like, okay, I love this. I'm going to represent you. I'm going to make you lots of money. And I thought, oh, this, <laughs> this is the great, this is the greatest. And, you know, he sent my novel out to the publishers in New York and almost all of them rejected it. I had 12 rejections. And then one person came back with an offer of $5,000. And I said, you said you were going to make me a lot of money. Like is $5,000 a lot of money? And he said, well, we don't have any other offers. So we're going to have to take this. So we took the $5,000 offer and I knew it was going to be a smaller book. I mean, I knew it wasn't like instant fame and fortune, but what happened with that book is that People Magazine picked it up as their beach book of the week. And it was, that was so exciting, but my publisher had only, had only printed 2,500 copies. So they immediately ran out of copies. Now, Rachel, because it's 2000, there's no Kindle, there's no iPhone. You can't download it. Like you, you have to go to the bookstore and get it. And 
so it was really frustrating because people wanted the book but couldn't get it. And then of course you forget about it. Yeah. Um, I got a contract for two more books and then I got a contract for two more after that. It wasn't until my novel Barefoot, which was my sixth novel, and I had switched at the moment. Literally. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I had switched publishers at that point. And, you know, in, in American publishing, you get to switch publishers once. I mean, you can switch publishers a bunch, but it, it almost never works out. That's like sort of like someone who gets married four or five <laughs> times and you're just like, it's just not going to work out. You yeah. get in, in publishing, you get a second chance. And I, I'm happy to say that when I switched publishers, I switched to Little Brown Hachette. And, and that's when the books took off and they did such a careful, thoughtful job of building my brand. That's amazing. And I think it's really interesting. I mean, the listeners and rights women, I think, are predominantly writers, but there is readers, obviously, too. But I think what's really interesting for me, and I'm sure many other writers who listen to this podcast, too, in earlier in the stage of their career than you, is that, you know, I think people often think it is, you know, you're successful now, you know, but people think, oh, it's overnight success. Whereas no. the majority of people that I'm, you know, authors that I respect and admire, it's been a hard slog and, you know, I'm sure there was times when you thought about maybe it was too hard, maybe you should give up. I mean, there were a lot of tears in the first, for the first five books, there were a lot of tears. And I mean, I can tell you, I could sit here all day and tell you horror stories. I had babies. So the year that Nantucket Nights, which was my second novel, the year that book came out, I had a two and a half year old and an infant Mm. and they would send me on on these to- not a, a tour is the wrong word. They would send me to events, but they wouldn't pay for anything. And at this point, you know, my husband and I were were poor. Oh, we didn't have any money, so I would have to pay for like the rental car. And I had the babies. I had to. T- I couldn't pay for childcare, so I'd have the baby seat with me, and then I'd have to nurse the baby. You know, and I was spending all this money, and then like four people would show up, and I'm like, okay this stinks. Like, this is terrible. And I would call and I would cry and I'd be like, can't you guys do any better? My publisher, my first publisher just wasn't interested in growing me. That story gets really ironic because then when I was ready to leave and go to the next publisher, they were actually the publisher that came in with the most money, you know, 10 times what they had offered me initially. And, and I just wasn't interested at that point. Cause I was like, you had five books to prove yourself. And, but there were a lot of hard years and just years where the book wasn't getting any attention. My books weren't getting any attention. I mean, I guess the good thing was that the kids were little. And so I had something else that was completely occupying my time. So I couldn't obsess over my career the way I might have otherwise, but there were definitely some hard years. I want to say one other thing. I did not get to number one on the New York Times bestseller list until my 23rd book. Wow, 23rd. I knew it wasn't, you know, in the first few, but that is amazing. Which book was that? It was the summer of 69. And the book that I had to beat to get to number one was where the crawdads sang <laughs> that on the New York times bestseller list for like 99 weeks. And I thought to myself, this is such an interesting juxtaposition in the, in the week that my book came out because I, here I am and I've been doing this for, you know, 20 years and, and there's Delia Owens and this is her first book. And she would be what you'd call, I think an overnight success. Yeah. It, it didn't go straight to the top, but I mean, it was so dominant and the movie's coming out, so it will be dominant again. Yeah. But it was so dominant, and I thought, I can't beat her, I can't beat her. And then I, I did, just for the one week. 
get the top spot. And it was so satisfying because it was like a different approach to publishing because I had been at it building my career year by year, summer by summer, book by book for so long. And do you say, say that's the first time when you're up against her that you made Yes, that was the first that's time. That's amazing. And I, I sort of a segue into your readers because obviously, I mean, that's the thing I think when you build a brand, you know, you, you grow your readers as you go. It's not like everyone knows because you're on Reese Witherspoon's book club or, you know, you. Um, right. And, and you definitely have a really good fan base and a community of people. Obviously, I see you posting your events on Instagram and, you know, you've got crowds and crowds there when you, and you're really generous to your readers. I really respect that. When I tell people that Ellen is my favorite author, which you definitely are now, it's not just because I love your books. It's because I think there's a lot of things I respect about you. It's the way you treat your readers. I've seen that, you know, you've turned up at people's weddings. Gosh, I do it all the time, yeah. And and, um, the other thing is your discipline, but we'll get to that. But, yeah, I want to talk about your readers and, you know, how you think you sort of grew that and obviously it was them that got you to the New York Times bestseller. Oh, 100%. Oh, yeah. I would be nothing without them. And that is what I think maybe... I don't know how other writers feel, but I would not be anything without my hardcore. And and it's a two-way street, Rachel, because I feel determined to make every book as good as or better than the book before. And that is a trust that I have built with them. Like, I am not going to phone it in. I am not going to deliver a dud. You may not like the book because you don't like the topic. People had a really hard time with 28 summers. Maybe we can talk about that later because yeah. of the adultery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm like, it's based on a famous movie. Never mind. Okay. So the, but it, you know that the book will be well written and it will be interesting in some sense. Like I'm not, I'm not going to phone it in. So I work super duper hard on every book. That's the trust between us. And then the the personal relationship with the readers is just something that has developed over time. I had breast cancer in 2014. And at that point, you know, I, I was supposed to go on tour. I got cancer at the same time my book was coming out. And I had to, I had to announce that I was sick. I went on the national news. Wow. And I think at that point, my readers, and that was in 2014, that was seven years ago. I think that's really when they solidified as a group and were like, you know what, we are here for you. That's amazing. It was amazing. It was amazing. And that's when they saw me as a person. And then this coincides also with social media. So I, I do my my own Instagram and it's I call it my fourth child because I take so much time and attention. So true. <laughs> but I put real stuff from my life. And during quarantine, like I did tours of Nantucket and I did tours of St. John so that people can see the places they know my children. It's important for me that they know that this is the life I'm living and it, I mean, it's not all gorgeous and perfect. The, the setting is, but I mean, the things that happen are real. And I, you know, I posted a sign before I went on tour that I had to leave for my children. And the sign I was like, that. don't put <laughs> knives in the dishwasher. I was terrified they were going to have a party <laughs> and I had I've just redone my house. And I'm like, my house is going to burn down. I mean, I was so concerned. <laughs> You should people have loved, that, locked them out and made them stay with other people. But I love that note that you left to them. I remember, you know, that and, and you know, talking about, I, I think this is one of the reasons I respect you so much because, you know, I've got three kids too and, and it is a discipline, which I, I've heard you talk about so many times because, you know, you have to make the time. But I, I really love that you are also obviously a very caring, generous mum who still makes them sandwiches and stuff when they're... Oh, all the time. Yeah. And uh, I respect that. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it's hard, Rachel, as you know, how old are you? 13, 15 and 17. So okay. So, yeah, I mean, it, uh, those are hard years. I'm not yeah, every lie. year. I mean, everything's every I, year is hard. <laughs> yeah. I thought, you know, it'd get easier when they get older, but in some ways, you know, the emotional thing is harder as they get older. Right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But um, speaking back to your readers again, so I just wanted two things. Your Nantucket bucket bucket list, week, list weekend. No, it's Ellen Hildebrand bucket list weekend, isn't it? Ellen Hildebrand bucket list weekend, yeah. That's right. And also the way you have, when you go to events, you specify a colour. So um, for anyone listening, Ellen dresses in a specific colour for her yeah. each event and then your readers come along too, don't they? So how did that yes. come about? And then, and then Ellen Hildebrand bucket list weekend, tell us a bit about both those things. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So the colours came about... I'm not sure. At some point, I, I'm very into my fashion, right? So I have all these dresses and I have all these clothes. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to, you know, I wear a different dress to each event. And so, and that sounds very spoiled and posh or whatever you guys say. So I only, get, I, you know, I get dressed up only if I'm going out only. And otherwise I look, I do look like a homeless person. <laughs> so but at some point I thought it would be so fun if we matched. So, and this is why two, two very big bonuses to matching. So I'll pick a color and I'll be like, this is the color I'm wearing. And then the ladies show up and then while they're waiting in line, they have something in common. So everybody's wearing orange. Everyone's wearing tangerine orange. And I mean, you stick out, right? So everybody's wearing the same color. They know that you're there for the Ellen event. And it's so, it's like a bonding moment for them. And then aesthetically, when the pictures are taken, if you look at my Instagram today, it looks good. Last night, before, <laughs> last night we wore burgundy and it, the pictures look fantastic because mm-hmm. we're all in the same color. It just has a very aesthetically pleasing look instead of like everybody in whatever they're wearing, you, you look cohesive. So that's why I do the matching. And it, I, I encourage you, Rachel, you can totally borrow it oh, and I'm do not. it in Australia. <laughs> I was going to say, I was it. steal it. And then I'm like, is that, is that, is that wrong? No, I'm giving you full permission to do it in Australia. It is so much fun. And then, okay. And then moving on to the Ellen Hildebrand bucket list weekends in 2014, I was approached by the owners of a hotel in Nantucket. And they said, would you consider having a, like a fan weekend? And I was being treated for breast cancer actively at that point. And I said, yeah, I mean, no one's going to come. I said, oh, I can do it. We'll do it in January when the island's very quiet. Uh-huh. And it sold out in four days. Wow. And, and how many people is that? It was just 150 people, but it's yeah, 150. <laughs> yeah. And it's grown and grown. And then of course we couldn't do it in 2021 because of the pandemic. Mm. We did have it in January of 20. And I can remember it was what it was during the weekend. Cause I was trying to book tickets to Thailand and on air China. And they're like, okay, if you want to refund your tickets because of this virus. And I'm like, I don't know anything about this virus. I'm not worried about it. But anyway, we had it in 2020 and then we did not have it in 21. We are having it this coming January. And in fact, we had 3,400 people on the wait list. So we're doing two back to back with 200 people a piece. So yeah. Just so amazing and so impressive. And I imagine, you know, that's just something that people that come to that will just That'll be like one of the things that they talk about forever. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've had people who came the first weekend in 2014 who've come every single other year, and then they come with people that they met in year one. And that's that's really the magic of it. So the the basis of the weekend is like there are bus tours of Nantucket. 
We do a wine and cheese. We do a Friday night theme party. We do a Saturday night elegant dinner. We go to the chicken box, which is like the, the dive bar. <laughs> I, know, and now, do dance. <laughs> I mean, it's so fun. And there's cooking classes with recipes from the books. And there's this, the, all the, ta- the shops in town do like sales and they do yep. discounts for Ellen people. And I mean, we do all this Ellen based stuff. And, but the, at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's about these women and some men coming together, staying in this gorgeous hotel, getting away, having, you know, escaping essentially and, and making friends and having this just girls weekend. I mean, it is about that. Are you at the end in 2022 or you think you'll do it again? I'm doing two, two this January. And then I'm going to do two in January of 2023 because my name on that list. Yes, that would be perfect. Just so you know, it's it can be cold and s- snowy. You might like that, actually. No, I, I'm fine with that. I'm just I'm just loving this chat so much that I've lost my train of thought. But I'd love to talk a little bit about your process and how you go about. As I said, I really respect. I've heard you talk about discipline before, and and your running and your exercise. How you do, you know? So, which I myself try to exercise every morning and run, and I don't always manage because I'm not quite as disciplined as you. But I have to say, when I do. I have a much better writing day. So I'd really like to hear about your whole writing process and how that sort of fits into. Okay. So I've always been a runner and since very early in college, since right after my freshman year, and I get up and I do it every single day. And it's really caused a lot of problems because I'm just in flex. Like I don't meet my friends for breakfast. Like that is not a thing that I have, I have done it. I think probably a handful of times in like the past 30 years. I, but I don't, I don't meet friends for breakfast. I don't meet friends for coffee. Like I get up and I exercise. And now that the kids are older, you know, the exercise has really taken out a life of its own. So like in a perfect world, I do a three-part exercise. I get on the Peloton, I go for a run, and then I do my bar class. Mm-hmm. And, and once that's done, I move on to the rest of my day and I feel great. And I'm always like, I do the hardest thing first, which is exercising. It's like a mind trick to make myself feel like, okay, now all I have to do is write, but then writing, I sit down and I work and I don't keep myself to a word count. I don't keep myself to a page count. I just sit down and I work and, and I have, you know, realized some days are better than others. Some days you're going to get a lot done. Some days you're not, it doesn't matter. I write every single day or I do work every single day. And if you do work every single day, you will get a book written. You will. And um, a perfect work day would be starting at 11. You know, I have a pool out back. I go out back to my pool. I take the book I'm reading. I'm always reading. And a lot of times I'll start by reading. I'll take a nap. I'll swim. And then I will just get down to work and I'll stop and I'll have lunch. And you know, in a legal pad, is that right? I write in a legal pad. I compose, I try to take of like this, of like a seven hour workday, I try to take three hours of actual composing. Then I'll type, take the legal pad when I have 50 or hundred pages, I'll type it into the computer myself. Cause I, no one else, yeah. no one else can read my writing, but also it's the first edit when you're putting yeah. it into the computer, then you print it out, then you mark it up. At this point in my year, it's, it's November. I'm in Boston right now. I take an apartment in Boston for six weeks and that's when I do my revising. Mm-hmm. And the revising, Rachel, is the most important part because now I've spent seven months with these characters. I've turned my novel into my editor. Yep. She comes back to me, her comments and her changes. 
And then I set about making the changes. And at that point, it's moving the pieces around, right? Maybe we should talk about the Hotel Nantucket because that is the book that you're currently doing revisions on. Are you a plotter or pantser or somewhere? I mean, I think we're all on the spectrum somewhere. How would you identify? I do not plot at all. I start with like a handful of ideas. So like I knew I wanted to have a staff at the hotel that was diverse and inclusive. Mm -hmm. And that's really, you know, developed from in like 20 years, like 20 years ago, I would not have been thinking diverse and inclusive. I I don't know what, but it's, you know, we're probably running out of time, but that was something I was curious, you know, how, how are you writing has changed because of things like that from. Yeah. So So I'm like (laughs) very focused on having it be diverse and inclusive. So I was like, okay, this is my cast of characters. And then I knew I had certain ideas. Like I I can't really say, because I don't want to give away the plot points, but I knew I wanted to have people have certain conflicts. And, you know, like there's a desk person who's being harassed by her ex-boyfriend. I can say that the manager of the hotel is a woman. She's gone through a horrible breakup, devastating breakup. And so this is like her second act. And, you know, she starts a romance with the chef at the bar at the hotel. And I can say that. And, you know, there are get, there's a guest who shows up on day one with her children and her pit bull and no one knows where she's come from. And she's like, I want a room for the summer. And people are like, who is that? She wants to pay in cash. People are like, who is this person? So you didn't know who she was when you started? So you, not really. I had a very different idea of who she was when she, when she got there. And and then as you're writing it, you're like, Oh, this is who she is. Oh my gosh. And it's like the aha moment. Like it's, like, even to me, I was like, oh my gosh, I know who this is. That's the best um, feeling, isn't it? You know, I think you'd have to trust the feeling. magic. And because I do believe there is an element of magic in writing when you write like that, yeah. you put things in and you don't really realize, you know, sometimes I think, why am I putting that there? That's pretty stupid. But if I leave it there, more often than not, there's a reason for it later. Like your subconscious knows more than, than you. I 100% agree. I do. That is exactly how I feel. Like, with the guest that checked in with her kids, initially I thought it was somebody else, like within the scheme of the book. Yeah. And then at some point I realized who it was. Like it was somebody else that I had set up within the framework. And I'm like, oh my God. And it's like this huge reveal at the end. And 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 my editor and agents were like, we were totally shocked. And that's so exciting. Um, yeah. yeah, it was really fun. And I had no idea when I started. So I'm a pantser. Yeah. Yeah, that is very similar to how I write. So I love hearing, you know, authors I admire say the same thing. And I hear there's a ghost in this one too. And there's a ghost. And the ghost really, I'm not really a ghost person, as you know, because you've read all my, a lot of my books. I'm not really a ghost person. It's a very Ellen ghost. It's my first ghost. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've written three ghosts. um, But so I'm very interested in ghosts, but I'm not sure I believe in them. So yeah, tell me about your ghost. So it's just a very Ellen so there was a woman, a chambermaid that was killed in the hotel in 19, in a fire in 1922. She's still hanging around. She's pissed off. She wants, she wants her murder acknowledged and she's not leaving the hotel until she has it acknowledged. The hotel has fallen, you know, into disrepair. She's been there by herself a lot. And, um, and so she is my omniscient narrator. So she's sort of floating around, listening to other people. Did that, like, when did that come in the process? Did you always know you were going to have a ghost or it just sort of, she turned up and you. She turned up, I I think early, but not at the beginning, like early on, but not at the beginning. I thought, oh, I'm going to have this, this ghost appear. I love an omniscient narrator. Now that I'm, now that I know how to do it, which literally is. The Nantucket talking in your book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, love it. Which kind of brings me to one thing that like, I I find obviously I write similar to you, and I find it's absolutely thrilling when it's working, 
<laughs> because you know it all comes together and and it's exciting because basically you're reading a book like a reader i mean you're writing the book like a reader reads it right and so if you don't know what's going to happen then maybe they you know won't as well but when it's not going well or you feel like you don't know what to do next it can be to me very terrifying way to write a book too and so i wondered you know do you ever get stuck and what do you do <laughs> And yes. do, you doubt? do you ever feel doubt after all these books? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, totally. So my plan originally was to retire with Golden Girl. That was going to be my last book. And in the summer of 20, in the middle of the pandemic, my publisher came to me and said, we'd like to do a new contract. And initially I was like, no. And then they threw a lot of money at it. And I thought, okay, they wanted a four book deal. Yeah. I said, I can do it. I can do two books. And they came back you know, with even more money. And they were like, let's do, let's do four. I did not want to do four. So I said, I'll do three. Mm-hmm. I kind of felt Rachel, like I was selling my soul to the devil. Cause I didn't. And I thought, all right, I'll write the hotel Nantucket. And then I have an idea, you know, another idea. Yeah. But as I was writing the hotel Nantucket, I felt the weight of the money on my back. And yeah. I thought I'm not going to be able to live up to this. Like I'm not going to be able to live up to this. I rewrote the first part of the Hotel Nantucket four or possibly five times wow. with different a different general manager. First, I had a man as the general manager, and then I had an older woman as the general manager. And finally, the third try was Lisbeth, you know, my young girl. Well, she's in her thirties. I like that name. <laughs> Just had the the, the breakup, and she is my general manager. But it took rewrite after rewrite, and and during all of these rewrites, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to do this. Yeah. I'm not, I, I shouldn't have taken the money. I should have just, I should have just retired. And it, and I was very, very scared. Yeah. And it was a very, it was very unnerving. And then at some point, once I got Lisbon in there and I started writing in the middle of the, some point in the middle of this last summer, July or August, the magic kicked in. And I'm like, I love this book. This book is good. This book, it's come together like this is going to be one of my best books. But it, got to trust the magic. <laughs> got to trust it, and it's so hard because you just yeah. there's no guarantee it's going to show up. And I can imagine like it's it, yeah, the more money you're given, the more readers you have, you know, buying your books. The pressure, at, you know, if people think it gets easier, but in in some ways, yeah. that's not the case at all, isn't it? It um, is not. Yeah. It is much harder because you have such expectations to meet yeah. and exceed. And as you said, you don't want to let your readers down. Absolutely. I, I actually ask, I wasn't going to ask you about this because I've, I've listened to a number of podcasts with you. And so I wasn't going to ask this because I know you get asked a lot, but I've got an online book club and one of my um, members asked when I said I was interviewing you today, I said, did anyone get any questions? They did ask about the, they're a librarian in um, Victoria who loves your books. And she asked, is it true Ellen's going to retire? Do you want to say anything on that to people that are listening? Yeah. I mean, it is, I am, I'm going to retire with my 2024 book. It's so funny because just yesterday I had two really good ideas for a novel and I'm like, I texted my editor and I'm like, I might take another contract because I just had these two ideas. But what is going to happen is the business plan that I've been rolling with, which is a new Nantucket summer book every year. Mm-hmm is coming to an end. It's too, it's too much pressure. And so I'm going to stop. Into, so I have a book coming, obviously the hotel from Nantucket comes out in June and then I'll have two more Junes where summer Nantucket books will come out and then I'm going to stop and I may write other books, but it's not going to be on the plan. Yeah. Um, I may write a cookbook. I may take a year off. I may write a memoir. I may, I may do other things, but I'm not 
going to continue the way I have been. So that will be like an actual hard out retirement. Not that I won't write another book, but that but the way it's going when is- you want to do it. I can understand there's probably readers that are disappointed, but as a writer, you know, who's only been doing this 10 years, I can totally get, you need that break. Leanne Moriarty, Australian author of, of course, everyone knows. Yeah. Um, I know she was going to have a year of joy and take a year off after her, not this book that just came out, but the one before. And, you know, it turned out apparently she, she found she couldn't do that, you know, and she did start writing yeah. something, but it was on her terms. Right. She felt like it, not because she had that that pressure. I'm real aware that we're, you know, almost out of time, even though I could literally talk to you all your day and all my night. I could stay <laughs> up all night. It wouldn't matter, even though I'm not really good at night usually. But you mentioned reading before, and I think that is really important to me as a writer to read as much, if not more than I write sometimes. And I know a lot of authors will say that they, you know, don't read at all while they're writing. For me, I always like, well, then I would never read. I think, you know, you've had two books a year often as well. And, you know, you'd be, so you'd probably be the same situation. So yeah, you obviously read, read while you're writing and it, yes. it helps your process. And do you want to talk yes. about that? And then before we finish, just give us some recommendations of things you've been loving maybe. Absolutely. So I always read, I consider reading part of my job and I read all the time. I'm always writing. So I'm always reading. I read one book at a time. I read novels by mostly female authors, contemporary fiction. I read stuff on the bestseller list. I try Rachel to read things that are very, very well-written because that is one way to make your writing better. You know, I write when in America are considered beach books and it's not like the highest strata of literary fiction, but I do read. I understand. I write rural romance. (laughs) So, you know. (laughs) I do read the highest. I read the highest strata of literary fiction. I read, you know, I'm going to read Jonathan Franzen's new book. I'm reading. I get a lot of, I get a lot of ARC. So I'm reading a novel now called The Caretakers about American au pairs in Paris. The books that I've loved this past year, I loved Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. And I loved Olympus, this book called Olympus, Texas. Oh, yep, yep. I stayed spawn. So, so good. How the one-armed sister sweeps the house, which was I not a book. That recommendation from you. It's still in my pile. So it is so good. Yep. It has nothing to do with the one-armed sister, which is why I did not want to read it. It's a murder <laughs> mystery set in Barbados. It is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. So I always read books that are very, very well written. My favorite writer of all time, I have to say this, my favorite writer of all time is Tim Winton. Oh yes. I've heard you say that. Love him. If I were ever in a room with Tim Winton, I would probably faint. I, I consider him (laughs) to be the highest. Like he is like, He's like right up there with Bruce Springsteen as like of like celebrities that I couldn't even meet because I would start to cry. Tim Winton is a genius who lives among you in WA. We rarely see him. He's a creature that, you know, only comes out occasionally. But yes, he's there. I believe. But when I I mentioned his name in the States, of course, nobody knows who he is in the States. He's just not well known at all. And I and and it's so funny because our genres are so different. Yeah. Yeah. But. During my time in WA, I, I read The Riders and then I read I read Cloud Street, which remains one of my 10 favorite books of all time. I, you know, I need to read that again because I read it in year 12 when I actually went through a period. I had to read it, you know, and it was like because yeah. it was school. It's on the school year 12 sure. you know, list. And so I need to read it properly again in a, you know, yeah. in a, different, t- in a different stage of my life. Brilliant. And I read Dirt Music. I mean, those three are sort of like the holy trilogy, I think, of Tim Winton. I mean, they are so good. Yeah. 
well, thank you. I won't keep you too much longer because um, I just wanted to say, though, I did I did a literary degree, writing degree at uni too, and I, I was actually going to say, sounds like we had very different experiences. <laughs> and so I looked up your Iowa, you know, right, because I was like, did they do any online stuff? But, yeah, my, my degree was sadly not so inspiring, but, you know, <laughs> that's okay. Um, it doesn't matter because you made it, Rachel. Well, I, I wish I didn't do a writing degree in a way. I wish, you know, that's why what it made me think about that is what you said about reading. I do really think, you know, you can learn so much from reading other people's work yeah. and, just, you know, enjoying it, but pouring it, you know, analysing it too. And, yeah. Um, one, actually two final very short questions. One, speaking of writing books, writing craft, do you, are there any actual writing craft books that you would recommend to the listeners? So I've never, ever read a writing craft book. You know, I was at the University of Iowa. So like the things that you learn there are valuable. I mean, mostly it was the discipline, but also just like, you know, the technique. This is my number one rule for aspiring writers. You have to dramatize, by which I mean, you have to write scenes and the scenes have to have dialogue and people in a situation. Mm -hmm. Dramatize, dramatize, dramatize. Don't tell us about it. Show us what happens. Like that is the number one thing. So like in any one of my books, you can go to the scene where, you know, like Mallory, like in 28 Summers, she's at the beach with her baby under the umbrella. And this guy's dog comes up and, and startles her awake. And then it's sort of like a meet cute. And then they start, they start dating. Right. And then that is, but it it has to be a a scene like that where People are interacting and it, obviously in the hotel Nantucket, like it's scene after scene after scene. And like the one woman who's working on the front desk, a girl from her past comes walking in the door and then she's like, you know, having a major freak out. So, but you have to have, you have to dramatize. So that's yeah. my number one writing rule must be done. That's good. And I'm glad you said that because otherwise Pamela would have um, told me off because yeah, at the end of these sessions, you are supposed to ask if you, you know, what's your top tips for, for writing, but I've just been, yeah. you know, having a conversation. (laughs) So thank you so much for your time. My final question is, how the hell do I get an early copy of the Hotel Nantucket? Okay. So you're going to just DM me and put your address in. It takes forever, but I will. I'm so cheeky, aren't I? I'm going to write it to my phone and I will send you an autographed copy. Uh, Thank you, Rachel, because this was so much fun for me and to all of my Australian readers or potential readers. I mean, I absolutely love where you live and I hope to be back. I hope you're back too. And I just, this has been one of my favorite chats ever. I could have talked (laughs) all night. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ellen. I'm sure everyone listening will get a real thrill out of it. Awesome. Bye, love. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon, and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, 
Every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>